and to continue this Palm Sunday in our Lent journey towards Easter. Uh, We've been in a sermon series called Cruciformity, where we've been talking about the way of following Jesus is the way to experience truth, the way to experience life, the way to experience hope and all that He has for us. However, it also involves a cross that stands right in the middle of that way. And so cruciformity literally means a way of being shaped and formed in the, in the way of the crucified Christ. We follow the crucified Christ and, and that the way our lives might be shaped by that through David brought a message on how our identities are shaped and formed through the cruciform way of Jesus. Our vocation, if you remember Sarah Scott Webb brought a message on that. Over the last couple of weeks, our following of Jesus, our discipleship being following in the cruciform way of Jesus. And today, my message is called Cruciform Kingdom where we talk about the triumphal entry, where we talk about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week on Palm Sunday, so over 2,000 years ago, and how that was actually ushering in a whole new kingdom. But it's a kingdom not like everyone was expecting. It was quite different, actually, to what everyone was expecting. It was marked by cruciformity. And so the invitation to all of us today is to continue embracing cruciformity because we will find within that the way to truth and life and hope, and healing, and forgiveness. And, uh, and so, welcome. Glad you're here. Let's dive straight in, because it's a fairly long text this morning. It's a long one. Get ready. Luke chapter 19. We're going to start reading in verse 28. Luke chapter 19. We're going to start reading in verse 28. We're going to go all the way through, I think it's the end of the chapter, yeah, verse 48. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Uh, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at at the hill of the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple, he began to drive out those who were selling. It's written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. 
This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Come on, with some enthusiasm. This is the Word of God for the people of God. There we go. Amen. That's more like it. Um, you know why we do that with enthusiasm, right? I've explained this, right? Because for so many years, the Scriptures weren't in written form. They were always spoken. And it was a joyous occasion anytime someone got to hear the Word of the Lord spoken. So it's, that's why people, when they say, it's the Word of God for the people of God, you respond with, thanks be to God, with enthusiasm, right? It's not like, oh, thanks be to God, I guess we, if we have to, all right. All right, so let's jump back. Verse 30 uh, in, this, in this text, the first, first few verses here, 30 through 34, kind of interesting story. Um, Jesus here, he says, he, he says, gets a couple of his disciples as he's making his way to Jerusalem, and he says, go on to the village ahead of you as you enter it, you'll find a cult there, blah, 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 gives all the instructions, and then it plays out exactly as he predicted, right? And a lot of people spend a lot of time kicking around this. It's really interesting, right? Uh, they go, well, is this because, you know, Jesus is just this prophetic ninja, you know, like absolute gun? Yes, he is, by the way. Uh, but, you know, is it because he's like able to predict the future and so he sends these people and it all plays out exactly as he says? Maybe, maybe that's true. Other, there's other social kind of cultural background that goes into this that suggests maybe there was some more at play though. It, maybe it wasn't totally this kind of supernatural thing going on. That actually it was quite common in that day and age when someone you know, kind of reputable and respected, was in need of some, you know, like a donkey or some kind of form of transport, they would go request it and, and people would graciously give it, knowing it was a loan, knowing, it, you know, knowing they're not just kind of like nicking the donkey and like running off down the road, ah, my donkey, no, it's not like that. You know, they know it would get returned and so people would trust that it was, it was being used for a kind of a sacred purpose, a special moment, and then it would be returned to them. Um, but actually, probably the best explanation for what's actually going on here for those of you who are Bible nerds like me and you like to kind of unpack the details, is probably Jesus just prearranged it. Because Jesus was in Jerusalem just the day before, actually, and probably on his way back out of town to go stay where he was staying, back in Bethany, he probably just popped in, he saw the thing on the side of the road and popped in and said, hey, by the way, in a, in a couple of days, when my, when my disciples come by and they ask to use the donkey, you know, um, you, you, well, they, they won't ask to use the donkey. If, they, if you see people taking the donkey, here, let's use this as like a password. Maybe Jesus set it up, hey, like, and you ask them, hey, why are you untying my donkey? And they say, the Lord needs it. Then you'll know it's me and it's not someone just trying to nick it, right? Like that, that's kind of like, I, I, reckon, I reckon that's probably the best explanation. Like Jesus actually just set it up and prearranged this whole thing. It's pre-planned, so it's okay. Uh, and, then, and then they go on. And did you notice... So they go, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, verse 35, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Notice they put Jesus on it. Jesus doesn't, doesn't assume it. He doesn't jump up on himself. You know, like they put Jesus on it. Uh, and he went along. People spread their cloaks on the road. Notice there's no mention of palms in Luke's. But it was Palm Sunday. Where did the palms come from? Well, if you, read in, if you read the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel, that's where all the palms show up, right? It's like actually, it's there. And the other things that show up in, in Matthew and Mark's Gospels that doesn't come explicit here in Luke's Gospel, but is still embedded and kind of laying underneath, is the, that, that Jesus here is actually intentionally staging a fulfillment of prophecy. If you look back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey kind of moment. You know, so Jesus is essentially, literally fulfilling that prophetic word from, from Zechariah. 
and, and kind of both Matthew and Mark make it really clear that's what he's doing. Luke, for some reason, leaves those things out. But we see then, it says, they brought their clo- uh, to Jesus' cloaks on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, this is kind of quite the scene, right? You can imagine the commotion. It's like festive, it's praise, it's joyful, it's rejoicing, and it becomes like this procession. You can, you can imagine them kind of trekking their way down the hill into Jerusalem. It becomes this, this quite this scene, and people would be attracted to it, surely. And they'd come and they'd start lining the streets, and they'd start waving their palms, and they'd start laying their cloaks as well, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It would have been quite the scene. And I think that's really intentional as well. Maybe some of you have heard me talk about this before, so just bear with for a few moments. But actually, on this day, Historians have, have argued that there were two processions that entered Jerusalem on this day. There was this one of Jesus with the common, ordinary folk waving palm branches and cloaks, and then there was another one that entered Jerusalem on this day from the other side of town. It was a Roman procession where Pontius Pilate and an entire Roman garrison would have come down from Caesarea and they would have entered town from the other side. They would have come in, they would have been mounted on war horses, they would have had all the armory, you know, like armored up to the gills, they would have had all the flags, it would have been an intentional display of military might and power and authority. It was an intentional signaling, we're in charge, right? Because Pilate was coming in with extra reinforcements to reinforce and keep the peace in the lead up to Passover. Because Passover in Jerusalem was a highly contentious period. It was when, you know, everyone who had their own messianic expectations were expecting them to be fulfilled and to come to, ba- come to pass. So the zealots were like looking for a fight, right? The Essenes are there kind of calling everyone out. There's, the, there's those who are, you know, looking for the fulfillment of all these things and in all their different ways. And so it became quite a volatile environment in the week leading up to Passover, which is the week of, whole, you know, the, the, the week we're entering now. And so Pilate and some extra Roman reinforcements would come in. You get the scene? You can imagine it, right? Like, you can imagine, and, though, and, and, and it would have created a scene. Like, like, this is the kind of scene that every year prior to this, families would have gone and taken their kids out to go and watch, you know, because it would have been quite, quite a moment, you know? So, but you can imagine also, like, it would have been, this is where all the well-to-do from society would go, you know? The aristocrats would be there in their box seats with their catering package being well looked after, Right? It would have been one of those kind of things, like, oh, yeah, 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 here we go, let's see what's going to happen this year. And then everyone, all week long, would be like, oh, who's going to spark up, who's going to fire, this? you know, who's going to do what, you know, like, what's going to happen? You know, it was just kind of that moment around Jerusalem all across Holy Week. So that's what's coming in from, from the, you know, the, the seaside of town, you know, and then, and then Jesus coming in from the east. And it's a very different scene. It's not a display of might and power and strength it's humble it's on a donkey no no not even a donkey a baby donkey right a young donkey never been ridden before and they're not waving like flags that display the power of rome and empire no they're they're laying down cloaks because that's what they had on their backs they're waving palm branches because that's what they could grab from the trees surrounding them right 
This is common, everyday, peaceful procession. And it marks a very different kind of kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, that Jesus is bringing to bear. See, Jesus is recognized as the peaceful Messiah. You see it in the words where it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Remember, remember at Christmas, just a few months ago, remember at Christmas, what is it in Isaiah 9 that they talk about when, they thought, when, when Isaiah prophesied the coming of Jesus, incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the prince of peace, right? Prince of peace. This is being lived into here in this moment, and I think they get it. They recognize Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peace, and it's only possible in a cruciform way, in that humble way, in that gentle, more quiet, understated way. But it's no less powerful. It's no less strong and mighty, right? It's just displayed and evident in different ways. And so we see in verse 39, some people are not that impressed with it. The Pharisees, in fact, they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They think, this is heresy. They're they're, they're recognizing, when when saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, they're saying, wait, the Prince of Peace, they're they're, they're acknowledging, they're, they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. These disciples are acknowledging Jesus is the Messiah. We don't agree to that. We didn't sign that off, you know, in committee. We didn't, you know, in our board meeting last week, we didn't sign off Jesus as Messiah, the Pharisees are saying. So, wait, wait, this is heresy. And they, they, they try and power up, right, and claim their authority in response to this. Uh, so they're saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then Jesus, I think, ushers a stronger rebuke right back at him. He says, I tell you, if they don't, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, those of you who have read this story or been in church for some time, like, how do you interpret that? The stones will cry out. I remember from Sunday school where I learned and for years and years and years have believed that, and I think it's true, right? It, it literally, the stones on the side of the road, right? Like the, the, normal, the normal stones that would have just been alongside the road, they'll cry out. And I'm like, yes, that's true. Indeed it is, right? Because the truth is, Jesus is saying, look, these regular stones on the side of the road, they'll cry out because all of creation actually knows the truth. That yes, I am the Messiah. That what these disciples are saying about me is the truth. You may not like it, you may not agree with it, but it's true regardless. And all of creation knows it, and so all of creation will respond. There's a second meaning though. There's a second meaning to this that I just discovered this past week. And this is, this is that actually the stones that Jesus is referring to is not just the ordinary stones along the way, but it's the very stones that form the temple itself. Think about who's rebuking Jesus at this point. It's the Pharisees. It's those that want to uphold the temple, that want to uphold the religious structures and systems of the day. And Jesus is saying, yes, but you've missed it completely. By rebuking me, you recognize that even even the system that was set up to try and lead you and hold you in covenant faithfulness to me has let you down or you've distorted it and corrupted it to the point that you don't even see it anymore. That actually true religion, true responding to God in worship is, is, is gonna cause those stones, the cornerstones of the temple to cry out and say, no, you're missing the point. There's a bit of a double meaning going on there. I'm like, oh man, that's good, eh? Maybe it's just me. 
Hey, I got another Bible nerd. Thank you. Yes. All right. Uh, so let's go. Verse 41. Uh, as, as he approached Jerusalem, and this is where, sorry, sorry, the stones crying out bit, that's usually where we stop on Palm Sunday, eh? That's, that's like the end of the Palm Sunday test. We don't need to go any further. But actually, I feel like God's got something more for us in, in what follows, because it says, you know, here, when, when Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, there's this moment where, you know, coming from Beth, Bethpage and, and from Bethany where you, you kind of like, he gets to the crest of the Mount of Olives and, and coming up the other side, you don't see the city out. Like if you imagine like driving up from uh, Governor's Bay coming up over, you know, you don't see Christchurch laid out until you crest the top of the hill and then you go, there it is. And I think it's that kind of a moment. Jesus crests the hill on the Mount of Olives and he sees Jerusalem laid out before him. And he sees not just the landscape, not just in the physical sense, but he sees in the deeper spiritual sense, right? He sees. I love that, that he sees and saw the city. It says he wept over it. And the language here is quite strong and deep. This isn't just like a, like a little sniffle, you know, like a little, I'm feeling a bit sad. No, this is moved with compassion, depth of weeping, right? Like deep in the core of him. This is, he's moved with compassion and it reveals to us the heart of God. Reveals to us the heart of God because Jesus is moved. It says, it says, you know, and he wept over it. He said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. We see, like the heart of Christ is, like he's heartbroken. He sees that these people, they don't get it. They don't see it. In all their show and their ways of trying to follow Jesus, they're missing the point completely. They just don't even get it. And, and we see that Jesus is going, look, I know what's best. My way is the way to truth and life and hope and healing and freedom and forgiveness. That's my way. I know what's best. I know what's going to bring you true peace, but you don't see it. You don't even receive it. This is the heart of God that I think is revealed right here. Like, God's heart breaks over everyone. This is true to this day. Breaks over every single person who doesn't know Him, who doesn't know true peace, who doesn't enter into His kingdom, His kingdom of peace. I think this is, this is a, a, a tremendous display, right? That's not true just back then when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, but remains true to this day. When Jesus looks out over Ototahi, across our city, our region. He doesn't see just the landscape and the buildings and the, and the roads and the infrastructure mapped out. No, he sees lots of people who, if they'd only known, if only they'd known what would bring them true peace. And the heart of God breaks because there's so many who don't. So many who don't. I believe this is still true to this day. And Jesus continues in verse 43, he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and, and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Whoa, that's a bit harsh, eh? strong departure from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? To, oh, hang on a minute. But this is not from like a place of 
judgment and condemnation. It's coming from a place of a heart that's moved with compassion, right? The, the, the loving, despairing, anguishing heart of God who's lo- like just longing for His people to know true peace, to know His love, to experience truly, and He wants that for everyone. But because they don't, here's what goes on. And this is just, and, and in actual fact, Jesus' words were fulfilled. 37 years or thereabouts later in, in 70 AD, when the Roman Empire did conquer Jerusalem and totally demolish the temple, you know, demo- destroyed Jerusalem. It was, and, and, and we see this played out again and again and again. Those of you who have journeyed, you know, you know the scriptures in the Old Testament. Babylon, Assyria, when God's people are no longer faithful to the covenant, God allows foreign nations to conquer and to overthrow. And it's kind of like this just plays out again to rule over them, to exile them, and whether it's Babylon or Syria, whatever. And so Jesus basically um, prophesies and predicts the same thing happening here. But it's again, it's not from a place of con- condemnation, right? It's from a heart that's moved with compassion. If only, if only, if only you would know uh, what would bring you peace. And then he goes into the temple. These should be his people, right? These should be, these are the worshippers. This is where people are worshipping, gathering in prayer. Like, he enters into the temple. These are the people that have been awaiting and looking for the Messiah. Surely they'd get it. And he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Why is he driving out those who are selling? Actually, because if you, I mean, this is, this is an interesting question because Actually, these, we often look at it and go, ah, oh, they shouldn't be doing that inside the church. It'd be weird for us if there were people kind of selling stuff in church, right? That would be weird to us. But actually, it wasn't for them. It was a necessary service. In fact, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, actually like, encouraged it and supported it because it was required for the, everyone who had traveled to Jerusalem for these big festivals where they would come to celebrate, they'd bring their local currency and it, they would need to be able to exchange it for the standard currency that was accepted in the temple. So they needed to have money changes, right? Essentially, currency exchange. And they needed to have the option to buy animals, birds or doves or, you know, whatever, whatever for sacrifice because the amount of time it took people to journey from home to Jerusalem, there was no guarantee that those animals that they would bring from home would re- still be clean and fit for sacrifice. So, or, you know, or, or, or um, and so they needed to be able to come and buy animals that were clean and fit for sacrifice once they arrived. This was normal and it was expected. It was spelled out within the, in the, the Mosaic law. So why is Jesus all upset about it and throwing people out of the temple over this? Right? It's a bit of an odd question. I mean, I mean what, why, why, what's going on? Um, some people have said, well, maybe it's because they were just overcharging and they're extorting the people, you know, charging way more than they should be because they're a den of robbers, Jesus says, right? Maybe, maybe. I think actually a better justification is that it's less about extortion and more about location. I think the thing Jesus is really riled up about and really, you know, taking exception to is that this is taking, they're taking up way too much space in the outer courts of the, of the temple. They're within the temple courts, right? There's no stipulation that this needed to be provided inside the temple courts. Why not just offer it outside the, outside the gates, outside the doors, you know, in the streets surrounding, nearby? You know, why not offer it there? You know, why is, it, why is this being, the outer courts was the only place that non-Jews, Gentiles, were welcome to come and worship and pray, Right? 
So essentially, this is the only place where these people, and remember the heart of God is He wants everyone to come and to know Him and to experience true peace. And if this is the only place that they're allowed to come and offer their sacrifices and enter into worship and to pray and be in the presence of God, remember they, they, they believed that the, the presence of God uniquely and specially dwelled in the temple. And if this is the only place they're able to do it, but it's so congested and distracted and kind of this like cacophony of all the buying and selling and all that kind of stuff, it's crowding. Man, that's not... That's not at all the house of prayer Jesus had in mind. And so, he takes action, right, and does something about it. I think it's an issue of location more than it is of extortion. Does that make sense? Verse 47, he says, uh, where are we up to? Verse 47, every day he was teaching uh, at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Oh, I love that that's the way it ends, eh? All the people hung on his words. Why do you think that is? They hung on his words. I think it's because they were hungry. I think they were hungry for more of God. I think they were hungry for the real tangible presence of the living God. I think they, they hung on his words because they realized, like it tells us in Matthew 7, like it tells us in Mark 1, that Jesus taught as one with authority. Not just one who's got the right credentials and degrees, but actually one who is God incarnate. He is God. So when he teaches, when he speaks, his words aren't just words from God. They are that, but they are God's words. He is God incarnate, embodied in the flesh. Jesus, in the moment, speaking the word of God. And that's why I think people who are hungry for the genuine presence of God in and around their lives hung on his words. And I just get excited because I hear some of that going on amongst us these days in our church. People are hungry for more of the tangible presence of God in real ways that we're hanging on the presence of God, right? We're we're, we're clinging to Him. We're looking for more of it and and we want that. Right, we want to know, like, like, like Peter, we want to be those who say, Lord, to whom else would we go? Because you have the words of life. We recognize Jesus, only you have the words of life. And so this morning, let me summarize kind of what we've said in this text, because it's a pretty, pretty long one. We've covered a bit of ground already, right? We saw on Palm Sunday, there were two processions entering Jerusalem from two different sides of town. One was ushering in the Roman military might and rule and power, enforcing in a way to try and keep some form of peace. But it's a false peace. From the other side of town, we see Jesus ushering in a whole nother kingdom, the kingdom of God, kingdom of true peace. We see that this kingdom of God is recognized by all of creation. We see that God's heart is for everyone. He's moved with compassion over those who don't find true peace in Him and experience life to the fullness in Him. We see, and then, and then with Jesus' clearing of the temple and those challenging words that He spoke about Jerusalem, those were quite harsh, right? And you may be sitting there going, Clint, how do we square this kingdom of peace, Jesus being the Prince of Peace, how do we square that with these challenging words and Jesus clearing? Because when Jesus gives those words about Jerusalem, right? Like, actually, your walls are going to be torn down and your stones 
no stone left unturned, you know, like all that kind of stuff, right? Oh, and by the way, you're going to get smashed. Um, and then he says, goes and clears people out of the temple, overturns the tables, all that kind of stuff. That, that doesn't square with our images of peace, does it? That sounds more like an agitator, right? That sounds like more who's showing signs of strength. And I think what we just need to... What I, I, the, the best way I know to hold these in tension is that Jesus, Jesus needs to sometimes disrupt the false peace in order to institute true peace. That for both of those, there were those who didn't see the true kingdom of God coming in the person of Jesus. And he needed to disrupt that false peace in order for them to discover the truth of who he was. For those who, you know, in the temple, in the place of worship, had been distracted and deceived and kind of just gotten caught up in the rigmarole of it all and lost the point that actually God wants everyone to have access to his presence, everyone to be welcomed into worship and in prayer and to be with him. And so he disrupts that sense of false peace that the temple was operating pretty well, they had their systems and processes and all that kind of stuff. He comes and disrupts it all in order to bring true peace because it's more than that. You see it? And I just, as a, a you know, I think that's, that's the truth. But there's another truth that lays underneath all this. And if that's true of what Jesus is doing in this story, then I think the responses we see between the different people in this story remain true. And I think they remain true to this day. There are some who receive this kingdom of peace, this prince of peace. They respond favorably to Jesus and his disruptions and they hung on his every word. May that be true of all of us, I pray. Because the alternative, it says, is that some reject and respond poorly. Verse 47 says, they were trying to kill him. And we know in verse 40, 43 and 44, when he's giving those harsh words around you know, Jerusalem and what will happen to Jerusalem and all that, we can't get away from the truth that Jesus is, I think the reason he's so moved, that he's weeping bitterly, like, we, like, like so moved, is he knows better than we do the significance of the consequences for those who don't receive him, for those who don't receive him as Lord, receive him as Savior, receive his love and forgiveness and give, them, give their lives to him. Like he, he sees the consequences are real. And so, my hope and my prayer is that each of us would respond really well to Jesus uh, today. Because I just have the sense for some, for some of us this morning, you know, um, that Jesus isn't just riding into Jerusalem like he does on Palm Sunday, but Jesus is riding into your heart and mine. He's bringing his kingdom. It's already established. And it's going to challenge it's going to disrupt some false peace all around the place. And how you respond has, has significant consequence. It does. It matters. And I want to read out, this is a, this is a word, actually last night, we had, we had a wonderful time at Pray First last night, and um, uh, Margaret came and gave this to me. Uh, it, she went home and just felt like 
so caught up in, in, uh, in prayer that she continued to pray after getting home. And so late last night, God just kind of dropped these words in her spirit and she felt like it maybe was for some, someone here this morning. And so I just offer it in that sense of what Jesus is saying to her and through her uh, is, is, what, is what, what I offer. She said, in this holy season, I'm inviting you to notice and trust that I am reminding you that and this is, this is like in the words of Jesus speaking to us, right? Uh, Jesus saying to each of us that, that I handed myself over for your sake. I handed myself over to give, affl- uh, to give, to receive affliction, to torment, to the uttermost of humiliations, becoming totally powerless. I handed myself over so that you might realize that my experience resonates with your powerlessness. Maybe you're powerless in a particular relationship. Maybe you feel powerless in your workplace. Maybe you're powerless to change your circumstance or to shift an attitude or a harmful habit or besetting sin. Whatever your feeling of powerlessness and helplessness, I invite you to come and acknowledge it to me, the one who chose to be handed over and powerless, that you might know intimately that I, your God, am with you in you and in your sense of hopelessness and loss, feeling it just as you do. I will come to you in this handing it over place that I understand so, so well. I am bearing it with you. You're not alone. So come, come to the cross, to the handing over place. Don't run away from it or don't run and don't walk away from me. This will become for you a place of power, a place of heavenly transaction, the very place where burden and brokenness yields to healing and wholeness. So come to me. What a beautiful word, isn't it? Wonderful encouragement. And so I want to lead us in a time of prayer and responding and we'll come to the Lord's table in a moment. So let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and minister among us, shall we? Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we're thankful that you are already here and you are already speaking and moving. We know it. We recognize it. But we just take a moment to attune our minds and hearts, our spirits, more fully to yours in this time. Come, Holy Spirit. We wait on you. believe that this morning maybe God's saying to some is to come come to him come to him the invitation is to true peace I believe maybe there's someone here this morning who hasn't 
received salvation, hasn't received the good news of the gospel. Forgiveness of sins and all, all of that, you know, that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't for his own sake, it was, it was for ours. That we might receive his love and hope and forgiveness and be saved and set free. And I believe today, that's, that's for someone, actually. I think, I think for someone this morning, God's, God's saying, I think there's, there's, I believe there's someone, yeah, this morning who's maybe been, uh, maybe you've been along to Alpha, maybe you've experienced a little bit of what it means to follow Jesus, but you've not yet given your heart to Him. And He's saying, you've had enough, you've seen enough, you know enough, it's time to trust. It's time to trust. Not from a place of coercion or condemnation or anything like that, but from a broken-hearted Messiah who weeps over those who don't know true peace. May the compassion of Christ lead you to receive. And the scriptures are clear that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, He will forgive you of your sins. And I believe that's what He wants to do for some of you this morning. And I believe there's others this morning actually who... who uh, who God's saying, you know, as, as, as Jesus enters your life, He's disrupting the false peace of uh, your own religion <laughs> where you've basically cherry-picked from the Scriptures, cherry-picked from the, the Gospel, those bits that you like and you agree with and opinions and, and actually Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm going to disrupt all of that if, and it's time to follow me fully. That you might know true peace.